This is Talks with Petrisol, and today's guest is Ville Virtan. Welcome. Hello, what's up, my man? So great to have you, man. Um, how did it feel, or how did you actually find out that Elon Musk uh, tweeted your masterpiece? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I found out because about a zillion people uh, at tweeted me and instead me and and even some sent text messages and stuff um and i think i was uh also criticized or called a simp and all kinds of stuff because i was too quick to respond to it apparently according to the internet uh laws and uh so what is too the, the, quick i mean that you nah, were the first one or no 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 i think it was like within the hour or something like that uh but yeah it it, it was um i i highly uh, respect mr musk is uh you know obviously the the serial entrepreneur he is he's changed the world with many things already and keeps on doing so apparently uh has no limits in in that so it was cool to have him mention the name of my track and uh we still don't 100% know if it meant that or if it was about any other of his things but uh i've decided to take it as it was a reference to to sandstorm and and that's my story and i'm sticking to it yeah i remember you you answered something like uh yeah thanks so much man and and if it's not me i i take my coat <laughs> yes yeah uh this is not the first time um you've been well, you, you, you like uh, there's been other stuff happening as well. Early on, 2014, uh, you were part of a Google trend uh, peak, and and that was a huge peak. Uh, what what happened then? Do you remember? Uh, if you mean the um, what song thing, or yeah, I, or, I think that was or, yeah, or the, probably yeah, or that, the, that was or, the, or the April Fool's Day. Yeah, April Fools. You were in the Google's April Fools, and uh, yeah, yeah, that uh, was I think related to the to the peak, but maybe it was starting earlier on when yeah. People were... I mean that that started a little earlier on the the sort of uh, what song meme thing, and um, that ha that's related to esports, and uh, I guess some, but specifically to to one one gamer who would be always apparently listening to uh sandstorm when he was you know ruling uh killing everyone or beating every opponent and whatnot and then um, people would come to his stream and they would be asking what song and uh it got so frequent the asking and then and then people in a chat responding oh it's the root sandstorm or he he did and so everyone just started responding to Root Sandstorm, whatever the song was at one point. And uh, it was rather weird and interesting at one point when my uh, Facebook and Twitter and, and also uh, YouTube, obviously, got flooded with what song, what song, the Root Sandstorm. And, and I was not in on a joke in the beginning. So I was like, look at the description. The name of the track is there. And people were like, oh, duh. And um, so so it grew, and uh, the the YouTube thing that the April Fools that I referred to, um, 
It's a quite interesting story in a way because we had that in our minds ourselves and we already had contacted that April, April before that April Fool's Day, we had contacted Shazam about a similar thing. Uh, but they never got back to us on time. And weirdly enough, we got a uh, call from YouTube asking if we'd like to do this gag with them. And uh, hey, YouTube asking something like that. Um, I'm going to say yes, you know, faster than the speed of light. Uh, it was crazy. Like you can't buy that kind of advertisement, even if you wanted to probably. And um, uh, it was obviously huge for for my my name, you know, peak wise. What twenty four hours the the YouTube hits and everything was just through the roof, of course. Uh, and we were actually using it because I was about to release a track, but it was supposed to be a couple of weeks later. And uh, then when this happened, we got the call from YouTube. We made um, my pure, poor. A music video editor almost killed himself with work because he needed to get it done, not in two weeks, but in like two days. And he got it done, my beautiful alien music video. And it was actually out the same morning then uh, the, the prank thing started happening. And we linked from Sandstorm to uh, the beautiful alien, alien video. And we got, I think, 250,000 hits within a day just as a side project uh, product of of all the sandstorm hits that were like over 2 million that one day because every search you did on youtube uh yielded did you mean the root sandstorm whether you search for metallica or i don't know beatles and such and um uh, it, it was hilarious watching the comments it's it was weird and just basically real time looking up, up the stats, like reloading YouTube stats and the graphs went to skyrocket and it was kind of, it was insane. You started uh, streaming, online streaming way before the Corona times. Was it mm. 2015? And uh, I think you attended the very first and performed in the TwitchCon. Yeah, yeah. We, um, that, that's also the gamer uh, connection. Weirdly enough, I'm not a gamer myself that much. Like, obviously, I, I know of computer gaming and, and the consoles and everything. But uh, the last time I really considered myself a gamer was uh, Commodore 64 times in the 80s. And, Is it um, C, cassette, or floppy? That's the uh, crucial question. Ca cassette, of course, and uh, uh, not even those those um manufactured ones with the screw on on you know built in but i had my own screwdriver and needed to adjust the angles myself for certain tapes different angles and whatnot that was um that was interesting but uh so over the years obviously you know i've i've played a rally game here and then you know shoot them up there and whatnot uh but i'm not a regular gamer but there there's a huge overlap apparently between gaming and electronic music and ele electronic dance music and i um i have a lot of uh fans uh on the gaming side and then th this gaming meme the what song and all all that sort of connected me with the gaming world and um basically uh 
I don't remember who contacted who, but but we got in touch with Twitch, and um, they were asking me to do that uh, TwitchCon. I think I'd done like a, a, a dream hack or something else before that, and I've also did a Valve uh, TI four maybe, which is one of their big uh, annual gaming happenings, and. So when I got in touch with Twitch, we just kind of clicked. They're, they're good people, and and I, I did the Twitch con, and then obviously there was a obvious sandstorm thing. So we actually did one of the streams was uh, twenty four hours of sandstorm. Wow! Uh, just on repeat. Yeah, which which I didn't have much to do other than it was just put on, and uh, you know they showed me the ropes with Twitch and. Basics, just streaming. Like obviously, I had uh, you know been on camera before. I had uh, done streams before, but they were always like technically organized by somebody else. And I went somewhere and did something, whether it was playing or interviews or or podcast type of things and whatnot. But now uh, I started doing it from from my studio here. And uh, in the beginning, it was very very sort of random, and I. Uh, was trying to get, uh, you know, familiar with the equipment, with the technology. Uh, initially, it was just like like my laptop, crappy camera, and and at some. I think point even go, the first video you can still see is like test. And, yeah, and you really like testing, you know. Things. Yeah, exactly. And with I was maybe fifty trouble- views. Yeah, it was troubleshooting live stuff, and um, but it was cool because I, I found a community that was very um i don't know they were it, it felt ve- very genuine warm it felt a weird like a weird community but in a good way i, I by no means th- that's a bad thing um and uh i over time over a few weeks and months i actually started feeling comfortable enough that i would actually start streaming my production process live which I'd never ever let anybody in, you know, at all, other than, of course, my co- collaborators. But um, even even when I make music in my professional life with with people who I who I collaborate with, often the actual production process it's it's me alone after we've composed tracks or had vocals recorded or or um, you know the ideas done. And then I just like become a hermit and start tinkering. And um, it's very, um, uh, I thought that it's very private that I could never do it sort of in public. But but even now, if you go to my Twitch channel, you'll find a couple of remixes and a couple of um, uh, track sessions that are, some of them are hours long, where basically people can kind of like overlook my shoulder and see me trying to play melodies and mess up and try again and and just kind of and it felt embarrassing here and there and uh it it felt very i was very self-conscious about all kinds of stuff but it actually helped me because uh while i knew people are watching sometimes five sometimes 50 sometimes couple hundred um it's not in my studio so it's not the same but at the same time there's an awareness somebody's seeing how good or bad I am at what I do. But I also realized that nobody else does what I do. 
and it's my thing. And most of the people watching were total uh, noobs in production or not producers at all. So basically anything I did was more than what they know. And that was a very, very needed revelation for me. So, you know, you know what you are good at or you know what you do. And, and that really like gave me um, confidence sort of going forward that, hey, I, you know, I know my shit sort of. And I don't know about you or, or anybody viewing this, but like e even after 20 years in, in the business, I have insecurities and I've, I have things that I don't necessarily want people to know about me or, or um, find out if I'm good or bad at or that. But so streaming, it's, it was sort of natural and I started uh, showing people more and more. And I like, in fact, I'm not a great piano player at all or keyboard player, but I've, I've many a times messed around with my keys, trying to find melodies and chords and this and that, and um, kind of not caring if I, and more and more being able to let go of uh, the embarrassment if I, if I mess up something. Um, so, so that, that was cool. But then, you know, uh, touring, Family, I've got a uh, wife and two kids, a uh, couple of hobbies. Uh, it takes a lot of time. So I never then did uh, regular streaming. So it was very random, sometimes two or three times a week. Sometimes there was a month of gap. Um, and uh, so it didn't kind of grow. Uh, like a lot of people who start streaming, they have a plan and they organically want to grow and systematically and so on. But I didn't have that then because I didn't feel, I didn't know that it would be something that I needed or wanted to do um, growth-wise as an artist. Uh, but it was just an outlet to, to and I, I explored it. But so uh, it wasn't until the unfortunate uh, coronavirus pandemic and the lockdowns uh, when I started uh, regularly streaming. And, and you, went, doing... you were doing that all the time since 2015. You didn't basically stop. You just did it. Yeah, no, no, I didn't, I, didn't I didn't stop. I didn't, I didn't, I never said that, no, I'm not going to stream or I'm stopping streaming or whatever. But there, I had sometimes a couple of months of gap and then I just turned on Twitch again. And then when I was on the road, I wasn't actually uh, that much streaming on Twitch, for instance, but I went to uh, just like a mobile phone route, did uh, Facebook lives or, or uh, Instagram lives for my sound checks and sometimes part of my shows and whatnot. So streaming has been part of my thing, even as an artist, but, but not at, as much the um, sort of organized and systematic Twitch streaming. Did it connect for your live audiences when went to the gigs and sort of the in real life, uh, this is before Corona time. So was it sort of, did it feel like a different, you know, sort of an isolated thing? Was the audience different or well, how did it uh, feel? I find I find that um, the audiences are different from different platforms to one another. Like, um, for instance, Twitch initially was a gamer uh, platform only, and then uh, around 2015-16, they started bringing in the more of the the creator side, the artist side. Um, there were people like myself and then Dead Mouse and obviously many, many other artists, uh, producers as well, singers, songwriters and, and whatnot. Um, 
because I guess they realized that they wanted to, and they had a platform that they can also expand that way. But because of the gaming connection, the gamers, uh, and sorry if I'm just throwing like a blanket statement here, but the gamers usually seem to, you know, they lurk. You know, if they're following their favorite gamer, they can have their, um, you know, stream on for hours and they just watch and sometimes they're active in the chat all the time, sometimes not. They can do chores and, you know, go to the store and come back to the stream, but they've had the stream on all the time. So there's this long attention span that is associated. Clearly, I noticed that with Twitch. So when I started doing the production streams, uh, I could do that. Like I could have a five hour session here. I could even say like, hey guys, I got to go get lunch, 15 minutes, come back and continue. And people <laughs> would still be there. Try that on Facebook. Facebook crowd, again, a blanket, you know, stereotyping statement, but but they are like, hey, give me the hit song, preferably in a condensed form factor right now. And then if it goes more than, you know, half a minute to the main thing in the in the song, they're out of there. Like it's it's more like, you know, the Spotify and radio edit version of everything. Because I've tried streaming uh, the the production sessions on Facebook as well. And, you know, people come in, but they also drop out really quickly. And um, I'm not blaming anybody for that, but it's just very different mindset and different crowds on, say, those two platforms. Um, Instagram with, you know, live is, again, kind of different, but it's more like Facebook for me. YouTube, obviously, having gaming and live streaming otherwise as well is closer to Twitch. But then again, the, the community on Twitch uh, and how people behave, what Twitch has as in features and whatnot feels very different. And I think I still prefer Twitch feature-wise and the community-wise. But then at the same time, YouTube, for instance, for me, streaming-wise, would have much larger reach uh, just by uh, kind of followership that you know sandstorm and whatever has created me for for youtube but so far i've i've liked the the vibes on on twitch and and that that works really well for me and sort of well it's very abstract but vibe wise um and i i think uh that's the most important for for me like um often if you have so for instance if i start a stream on youtube um, there's a lot more dumpster fire going on in, in the chat than in, say, uh, Twitch. Uh, the other day I was talking with the Swedish uh, Twitch streamer, Sweepless, and I just remember that she, she mentioned that, you know, she's basically uh, drawing and playing games as well there. So, so but, but what I remember from there that she said that, you know, the Twitch is basically streaming is basically like a window to her world. It's a one-way <laughs> street in a way. Yeah, people can chat, but you basically just talk there by yourself and, and open the window. And uh, I remember in your wipes, you know, Friday wipes uh, starting, uh, is it uh, six o'clock in the Central European time? Um, you eating carrots and you really like <laughs> casually talking with people and, and, and also in the, like you say, showing the vulnerability and sort of the everyday life going on there as well. So it's, it's not like a polished thing, but it, it's, it's like that, you know, you can connect to people easily. And I think that's, that's really, really nice. And, I, 
and and yeah. you, you learn so much about the persons behind the the artist uh, image yeah. as well. I um, I'm going actually I'm jumping back a little bit because you asked about the the connection with the so I just spoke about the platforms, but but so I did uh, regular sound check facebook streams uh sometimes facebook and twitch as well but but the soundcheck streams were more on facebook just because it was easier to do it on a mobile and at, now you can actually do that uh on twitch as well with twitch mobile app but um i tried to uh connect sort of the real world me as an artist my, meaning my touring and and uh, what's going on on the road both uh streaming parts of the gigs themselves to show that you know actually play the music so people can hear what's you know being played but then show the crowd and get those vibes but um even more so i i i like the palm of a sound check and i would um my normal sound check would be my tour manager would actually go and set up me technically I know how to do that myself, but he's just going to connect a couple of wires and, and see the initial stuff, you know, uh, talk with the local sound guy, because then I can have my five minutes or 10 minutes of streaming. So here's my sound check and here's the club and I'm, you know, showing people that. And then I go to the DJ booth and then I play a track or two with that equipment, show my view. And um, I noticed that people really, really like that kind of uh content and that kind of side of what i what i do and i don't know if it works for everybody but and uh like i'm not judging anybody i'm not we all have our different ways but but for me it's a really difficult thing to um be in a rat race of trying to make everything look polished everything look production value one million bucks production this and that or make a everything a production like there are some artists that never release anything that is not like cut to the beat color corrected you know intros and outros and that's fine one i don't have that kind of time possibly not budget possibly you know i don't want to do it all the time don't get me wrong i have polished stuff as well but but the my everyday life is not polished and i don't necessarily want to pretend that it is either uh it's it's actually really rough for me to always be like you know my hair is always perfect and and i'm, I'm 46 years old and i don't have those kind of uh, insecurities where I would be, I don't know, whatever, ashamed of my hair being bad or something, which, it, by the way, it's today, and that's why I'm wearing the hat. Um, but so uh, I noticed that a lot of people reacted really positively for, you know, to me revealing more of myself. Like, I know for a fact that a lot of people know that when I first go, say, to america to a country that is away from my you know home country often the first picture or live uh clip it, i'm actually having a little bit of a five o'clock shadow because i've come from home where i didn't necessarily shave every day and i i'm flying and i'm kind of like trying to make it as chill as possible and whatever so then i do my sound check with a little bit of scruff on and 
some people crack a joke about it because they already know. Then I go to the hotel, eat, take a nap, and I shave. And then I'm clean shaven when I do the gig. And then the same people crack a joke about, you know, me looking 20 years younger, whatever. Like, I kind of don't care exactly, you know, seriously about showing the best or the most polished. And I think that's what the Twitch streaming is. And like you said, she, she said a window to my world. Like sometimes my son needs something while I'm streaming. I'm on, on the air. I, I'll go and open the door and say hi. And I don't know, whatever, give him something or he gives me something and bye. And then I tell the people, well, that was my son. No big deal. And I like that aspect of, of the thing. And, uh, that directly ties to what I've, I think that I've always been, um, I go to a gig and I play and F Corona. Cause maybe I can't ever do that again or not in a, you know, near future, but, but I go to the crowd. I, I literally jump in the crowd during my set often and people are weirded out by that. Then they are very very happy about that oh he's you know coming down here with us and that's what i've always been like i i don't put myself on a pedestal i think and i don't want to and the streaming you being able to jump in a chat and ask me a question and then i actually answer it is apparently a big deal and uh, i've never thought about it like that but if i can give that experience and if i can actually get that real world answer to somebody who's asking about my music or my hoodie or my equipment or whatever i mean i'm i'm happy to give that and i think that creates my community how big is the community nowadays uh, has the corona uh, give a lot of uh, boost to that you know do you have some idea that I see that um, there like 500 people like last Friday, I was just uh, checking in and I think that was, yeah, hard. I've had, I've had, um, regular streaming numbers on now between, uh, 500 and 800 or so, um, of simultaneous viewers. And then it peaks, um, uh, 1,500 depends on if there's raids coming in and whatnot but uh yeah it's it's kind of cool you know if you think about it you know i know the big gamers could have tens of thousands at the same time they they might have uh, millions of followers and whatnot uh but on a music side having the you know five to eight hundred simultaneous viewers is is a decent number and i mean thinking about it it's a decent sized club having 500 people with you and, and if you uh, think about it, that over the course of the two, three hours you online, that's probably going like five to 10,000 people altogether, you know, unique viewers. Yeah, there's, um, I actually, so uh, I think unique viewer numbers are possibly peaking about five or 7,000 in that kind of thing. I, I don't, I follow the statistics a little bit, but I remember something like five or 7,000. It, it depends on the night, of course. I have a pretty good core crowd, but then how also how Twitch works is that some, you know, I have the core crowd, which, you know, obviously that hundred or 200 people, whatever I would consider the 
core, that fluctuates a little bit, but then um, there's always new people and somebody doesn't come and then Twitch has their algorithm. So sometimes you might end up on a front page or on somebody's like, um, you know, they also view or, you know, watch this kind of list. And if that's a big person or if it's on a front page, then you could, you know, momentarily get like a, a 10,000 viewer peak of which most drop out after usually a while, but then you still get like a tail for it. Like a couple of weeks ago when I started my stream, I almost, you know, whatever fell off my chair because I think before I even started my stream, like it was on the, you know, starting soon window, I think I had like 2,500 people, but it was because they started this, um, um, I think creator spotlight system, uh, Twitch did. And so they picked their algorithms, pick, um, the, the first few minutes of, uh, of somebody's live stream. And they actually sent, uh, a notice around, like, if you are a live musical creator, uh, don't use too long, uh, starting soon screen because that's how the algorithm works. So they wanted, uh, people to you know, get right on their stream quickly, which I actually tried to do then as well. Usually I have like 10, 15 minute wait time and a countdown, but uh, because normally that works well so that people have time to come in and settle and whatnot. But um, yeah, it's it, it's uh, this year and a half of uh, sort of steady streaming has definitely grown that community. I think I started from about, 10,000 followers around that time, which, you know, the first few years to that. Yeah, going back uh, almost five years, so even more. Yeah. And uh, now I'm at like 33,000, maybe. I haven't looked at the number, something like that. And which is followers. And so on Twitch, following doesn't cost anything. Uh, but then some of those people uh, want to support and they subscribe to the. Uh, tier one, two or three uh, subscription, which basically right now doesn't give you uh, much in my case, uh, other than um, emotes and you get uh, some uh, benefits in the chat. And um, then also I have a Discord channel that is connected to my Twitch and uh, you get a private room for subscribers there as well. And um, when I was doing more of the studio stuff, which I, that's been on hold for, for a while now, I've been too busy. Um, I actually like shared samples. I would actually do sampling live, like sampling my hardware keyboards and, and doing sample packs and sample instruments. And I would share those and um, some, some other stuff like uh, private um, mashups or remixes and whatnot that I have shared a couple of those on there. And um and then Twitch has a donation model uh, thing and uh, they have their cheers or bits or what, what have you that you could technically, um, you know, show your support financially to your favorite streamer. But uh, honestly, I don't know what I've gotten financially in the, for instance, last stream. I have a good handful of subscribers, but I don't even know the number because it's not that I don't care. I care greatly and I appreciate the, the subscribers, but um, 
I don't do this directly for money. I, I've, uh, it, it's a, it, for me, it's been a huge, huge mental health factor thing for me. It's an art, artistic outlet, you know, not having live gigs, uh, now being able to do my DJing and connect with a crowd. And then, um, uh, the, the, the connection I often say on, on, on the stream as well, probably is what's keeping me sane. Um, on the, on the music side, of course I have a, you know, I have my, my family here and my friends and, and all, all that, but honestly, uh, without having the connection with, with a crowd and people hearing music and, and vibing with me, the, the music that I love to play. I mean, I think I probably would have gone nuts at some point already. What's the biggest difference for the live audience? Is there something better and, and what sort of, you know, going forward, you know, some people, for example, business side, they just like, oh, I'm not flying anywhere, any meetings, I'm doing everything remotely. And, and you know, this is how I'm going to do my business. So what sort of the trust uh, me, yeah, checkpoint trust now? Me, man. Yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I've thought of, thought of that, that a lot. Um, live shows are live shows. I definitely do want to do those again. Even if, um, honestly, even if, if Twitch or any other streaming, but Twitch that I am, uh, um, by the way, I'm, I'm a Twitch partner, so I can't contractually stream anywhere uh, simultaneously. I can technically do other streams, but but um, Twitch is my main thing, and I'm, um, I want to keep it that way because, like I said, the community is um, so great there. But even if I got, income enough from just streaming i also think that the live streaming i mean the live uh gigs they're so different they're so the aspect of physical people in front of you you know seeing the smiling faces and people go nuts and feeling the music jumping up and down or or dancing to to the music that is actually played in that room and that togetherness and whatnot is hands down better than uh, a streaming experience. That's not because of the crowd in the chat is not great. They are insanely great. Like, don't, don't, don't uh, think that I don't like my streaming, but it's just, I, I swear that the most of the crowd that is watching my streams would prefer live gigs as well, uh, at least occasionally a lot of us have been now just for been forced to uh enjoy music and and doing something together you know on a virtual way but um nothing beats the actual live experience but my crowd on the stream also uh, some of them are say 40 something moms and dads who just simply can't go out like that they have kids or they have work they they wouldn't any anymore or as often so for them the streaming is the best of both worlds they they get to uh connect with other people and possibly the artist or dj and they get to hear music they might have amazing sound systems home and they're they're blasting in their living room you know in their evenings or or mornings cleaning or whatever so so they they're not mutually exclusive 
at all. And I've, I've come to a, a realization that there's definitely a market for it, um, sort of artistically and also business-wise, um, for the, the streaming, even after the lockdowns are, you know, and it's safe to travel again. And um, I'm definitely going to uh, go forward First of all, like I did even before the lockdowns, I streamed select gigs here and there. Uh, I think I'm going to keep on doing that, but even a little with with some more tech, basically, maybe a camera angle to uh, miking the place a little better than just like a you know cell phone thing. And um, it's actually quite quite easy these days with the tech i mean i've um you can't see it but i have a little switcher that i could easily put in my backpack a couple of gopros or some other cameras and and any uh sound guy lighting guy tour manager who i've dealt with before and who worked with me before could probably do a decent job with the live streaming tech side as well so i'm gonna keep on doing that but then in addition to that, I probably will plan on doing some uh, streaming-only events as well because it's just, um, like I said, there there is a crowd for that as well. And so there's an interesting thing to de- develop the what what's the um, promotion strategy? What's the how does it work time zone wise going globally streaming and performing locally and all of that is is interesting you know should i record those things then and and then replay them back after the fact and then we come to all kinds of music right things and whatnot so th- there's a there's ton of ton of stuff that needs to be thought out uh and and organized there but uh definitely will be will be streaming, you know, after the lockdowns as well. Before going to the business side, uh, I just remember last year you did a, uh, some balcony thing in Finland. Can you explain <laughs> how it started and what is it all about? Oh, you can um, see it actually in your Instagram, you know, maybe I can also put it to the show notes. You know, there was uh, quite wild stuff happening in real life. And that was in uh, when Corona yeah. was, you know, just starting to happen basically in April 2020. Do, do you know what I like? most uh is like i i feel so uh you know happy and and i'm not a religious guy but i don't know a better word for it i feel blessed um fortunate having people who come up with stuff in my life or regarding my my music mainly obviously not me but my music um so when the corona lockdown started in finland you know, nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody knew how long it's going to be. People are sort of desperate, and I guess globally, not just in Finland, but desperate or weirded out and what the hell. Um, somebody, uh, a, a woman named Orvokki, came came up with this thing like, hey, we can't go out. We can't do shit. How about we just go on a balcony and blast music? And he, she happened to be a fan of, my track sandstorm and she's suggested let's play sandstorm from our balconies and which obviously extended to backyards or cars or whatever and uh, so this you know sandstorm friday thing started 
and for um i don't know for like two months in a row every friday at 6 p.m finish time um people just started playing sandstorm from their little boom boxes their cell phones their huge pa systems whatnot um and sent pictures videos of them doing crazy crazy things dressing up as whatever uh some with very little and to to that facebook group which grew to like 40 or 50,000 strong in a couple of months and i also started immediately taking part in it from my friday stream which i'd already had going on and so i started my stream with Sandstorm, uh, and I actually still do. And then also Uleax, our national broadcast broadcaster, um, their Uleax station uh, had this, um, I think it was a retro something programming going on at that hour. And for like two months or something, six weeks at least, uh, they played Sandstorm. Basically they were like the sync point of Finland. It was incredible. It was insanely cool. Uh, and, um, you know, they interviewed me and, but I didn't, I didn't start any of this myself. Orvokki did the, start the whole thing. It went viral in Finland and um, I took part in it right away. But then, uh, you know, Ule Axe played the track and uh, it, it was insane. It was really cool. And then it expanded. Um, there was a, a hospital, women's hospital in in Helsinki, who wanted to cheer up basically their staff and then also their peeps uh, who went there and did, to deliver babies, um, the women. And they it was horrible because uh, they couldn't have their spouses or their families with them because of corona restrictions. And that wasn't cool. So they wanted to have a happening to kind of cheer cheer people up and so i went there and played sandstorm and they arranged like um mind you socially distanced uh and masked kind of flash mob thing so all the hospital staff or all who, who could came out and we did a little drone shoot and uh some other camera stuff and and um shot people a video of me. signs and you can you can see that in the in the photos yeah. i think it's in your Instagram. so so i played sandstorm for for the hard-working crew of that uh that hospital and we made a video of that and and they uh used it in their social media and it, it was really cool and um i actually did a similar thing near where i live here in salo uh it wasn't a uh uh it's a, just a general hospital and um they had their um hard-working staff appreciation day where they had this out uh, outside event where they were offering uh um well basically lunch for whoever wanted to have lunch for, of the hospital staff for free on uh on this little charity thing basically showing our appreciation for their hard work and i was playing music there in the background for a couple of hours and um it, it, it's incredible how uh you know I'm, I'm asked to do these things and i my music connects people and that's one of the things that where you know people ask me about success and uh, yeah i want to make money i you know this is my only job to support my family and you know 
going forward, but but the financial aspect is not really that's a necessity, and uh, I want to do well. But but when people concretely show me these things, or I'm I'm invited to do stuff, and I go and I see that my music has a part in people being happy or united or whatever it is. That that's the biggest demonstration of success for me i think it's uh that that's what i feel the the most you know deep um gratification from and uh, like it's not like 20 years ago i decided that some hospital somewhere is going to be playing my music or having having a a moment of unity with it or through it or you know yeah, there wasn't even YouTube at the time, so you couldn't even imagine being a Google prank. So any of these things, Spotify, yeah, it, you know, didn't exist. Exactly. Well, there was Atari, as I, I, as I, yeah. I guess, where you started. Um, you've been posting also those rejection letters from the regular labels. Uh, let's go back a bit, you know, then we can, you know, also take a bit of perspective on the how the business has changed, mm. the industry has changed. But can you describe a bit, you know, uh, you? You, I think it was Robert Miles' children which inspired you a lot and, and you started to do stuff. And Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, had a, I had a huge sort of love and interest in music when I was growing up. Uh, my mom played clarinet in like local orchestra, this, this um, yeah, whatever, city orchestra thing. And um, she was, well, she still is musical. She sings karaoke and, and is sort of interested in music, but never had a career in music. My dad didn't really play an instrument, but but he had uh, he had some of his favorite bands and whatnot um, from 70s, 80s. Uh, our house was always blasting, blaring music, all kinds of Finnish stuff. The, the Juha Mattis and Kakerandelins and Meiju Subas and... And then there would also be, of course, I'm not actually sure, but I want to say probably both Rolling Stones and Beatles and whatnot, like, you know, those, you know, their commercial stuff that was on a Finnish mainstream uh, radio and, and record stores at that point. But, but so when I was a teenager, I, now looking back, I've realized that I was quite into music. Uh, but not playing an instrument. Like I, you know, we had a little Casio keyboard, but I never took piano lessons. I never studied more than what, you know, the elementary school music studies in Finland are. Uh, and I played ice hockey. Uh, that took a lot of my time. And uh, if I'd asked, I probably could have gone piano lessons, but I'd never, it never kind of really did, didn't even occur to me. So one of the first sort of signs now looking back is that I wasn't the DJ, but whenever there was some sort of class party going out or going to somebody's place, people would ask me to bring music. So because I had you my, had the mixtapes, so was there some other, uh, yeah, other reason? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I had cassette mixtapes that I would have recorded from the radio, you know, countdown programs and whatever we had, a couple of uh, like local radio stations that I was listening to um, from from Pori and Harjavalta and Huittinen local stations for instance and then the national stations on the Ule uh programming and i would just 
I, I was so into that then when my buddies, you know, when I was 12 and 14 and 16, whatever, when they went out Friday nights or Saturday nights, I often, one of those nights, mind you, it's not that I didn't go out, but one of those nights, usually a week, I stayed in and I listened to my favorite radio show from my favorite local DJ or whatever and the countdown program and I would record the music and I just, that I preferred that to going out with my buddies, which now is an indication that, you know, I love my buddies still and uh, hanging out with them and doing stuff, but, but the music just took over on that, in that way. And, uh, you know, at that time with limited uh, language skills, I still wanted to uh, figure out what the music was saying, what the band, foreign band names meant and all that kind of stuff. And it was just maybe a step deeper than some of my friends had. And I didn't realize that until later, uh, you know, so the, the listening to music, that's my musical education. But then when I, um, towards my uh uh when my high school ended so lukio in finnish so i was uh 18 turning 19 um i actually found this buddy who i skateboarded with yussi who uh he was probably the first guy who actually showed me like a tracker program and we did this horrible <laughs> hardcore industrial banger with I don't know even if they were drum samples or whatever they were. I think that was my first ever experience in in sort of making music. Uh, neither of us knew what we were doing, and we just put some samples together and it was god awful noise, I would probably say. But but so then I went to the army when after the high school ended, and so I'll, again, like another year went by, and then when I got out of the army a year later. Um, Went to study in Turku at the uh, at the Polytechnic. I found a couple of new friends who showed me similar software again, and now this time it's stuck. Like I started working on my own music, got a computer, and uh, for the school basically, but got used way more for for uh, music making stuff. And uh, you mentioned Robert Miles earlier, yeah. Uh, you know, children with the uh, famous piano lick and a uh, couple of other things in it, the key components were possibly what I was trying to emulate when I made my first track. My first track wow. ever is, is called Alone, and nobody's ever heard it, other than a couple of my friends, maybe. Uh, no, and I, I see keyboard there. Maybe you can give a sample. Luckily, this is not connected to anything right now. Uh, but it... it um, but let me tell you, so Robert Miles, it, it's really a good reference because uh, that song and that software that I was using was not that great quality. The samples that I were using was a piano sample, a bass sample, a kick drum, hi-hat, and a clap. And uh, the bass and the piano compared to each other were not exactly in tune. But maybe I didn't know about exactly something being in tune or not or maybe i didn't care but i when i played those few piano notes with my one finger technique at that point i thought i was robert miles you know that 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 was like that's it that that's what i heard from his track and then i had a piano sample like here and 
you know, the rest that's is how history. The, the rest is history. That's how it started. Well, it took a couple of years uh, of uh, trial and error, and that's what I still call my music making in a, in most of the sessions. It's trial and error. Like I, I rarely have a f- ready-made thing in my head that I just play out, and that's the track. It's mostly like I have an inclination of something, a feeling, or a vibe, or maybe style or direction and then i come here and noodle around and it usually turns out to something different but um it's based on this hunch or this feeling and i often say that my skill if you know i can say it myself my skill is uh in in my uh, sense of style or sense of sound and then when i come across it not by accident, but sort of like when I come across it, then I know when to keep it like that's like it's it's derivative or happenstance or stumbling onto something. But then when I come across it, then I know how to keep it or now I found something and then I build on that and then I build on the next thing and then I build on the next thing. I think that's how where my sort of skill set is and like. I'm not dissing myself, but I've never considered myself a musical genius, but I know what sounds good to me. And then that's how I progress in my tracks and projects. Uh, when you started, oh, I, mean, I mean, that you, you mentioned that you already did it for a few years, but uh, Sandstorm obviously was the, the biggest thing almost at the beginning. Did you have a punch of, you know, these songs and did it sort of feel like, okay, this is the thing now? Well... So, so it's like a, is, you had it from the beginning that sort of sense that, you know, this is good or, or you know, this is something where I can just take it further. Uh, well, so, yeah, answer that. Um, when Sandstorm finally sort of formulated, like when I finally made um, the chord structure, some drums and whatnot around the main doo-doo-doo uh, melody, it felt great. It felt good to me. It felt like there was something to it. But even at that point, like I had sent my tracks to like some music magazines that that had like a demo uh, sending thing and they would either publish a review or whatever. I had sent to a couple of radio stations and I had sent stuff to a couple of labels. And it's a strange thing to say, even even me saying it out loud, but I did not ever think that I would get signed. And I don't even, I I don't recall myself being like, yeah, I'm going to get signed and I'm going to become an artist and I'm going to, you know, start but, traveling but internationally. you did send them to Sony, EMI I, and Poco and a lot of stuff. So they, obviously there was some kind of aspiration going on. They, they, I, I, exactly. That's the funny thing because... I feel that I never ever like played the air guitar in front of a mirror or sang into an you know hairbrush and tended to be a rock star and had an aspiration to be that. Never. Nor you know with the electronic stuff the same. But but yes, of course I did. I, I burned CDs and I handed them out to local DJs. I sent them to record companies before CDs, C tapes, I, I, I cassette tapes. I gave them out as well. Um, so yes, I was looking for something, and uh, honestly, like 
um, me be getting signed with um, J16, Jaco Salovara's record company, um, and him becoming my producer, I was not asking to get signed. I was not asking him to become my producer. I asked feedback. Uh, I wanted to, you know, I looked, I knew who J16 was at that point, and I uh, gave him couple of tapes first and then uh the third one was a, a cd that i burned and that had actually demo of sandstorm on it and uh i wanted feedback basically what should i do better blah 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 and uh but he wanted to sign me or talk about possibly signing me when he first got in touch with me so it, it's weird because i didn't have that aspiration that i knew of but obviously i burned cds and i sent them like you said and, and asked uh, for feedback as well. For, so you were for, learning for, and, and, you know, yeah. in, in that mode. And, and it's it was that, but it was more like I didn't even realize it myself. Like, And then, to be honest, uh, so you mentioned like there was Poco Records and there was Sony, Finland, probably Universal. I don't remember all of those, but um, when I sent stuff to them, uh, many of them were polite, responded even, which I'm, I'm thankful for because not everybody does. Um, but it was always the same kind of like, sorry, we're not looking for this kind of music. We're looking for pop and uh, Finnish lyrics or Finnish singing on them, which I get it, it was, especially then it was Finland and it was early times for any kind of electronic dance music like that. Um, so that in itself was to me like, I'm here, I'm an amateur. And then the real people of the artists world and the record companies, they are here. So I didn't even, I didn't even dare or know to dream that big. So I think it's because of that, like I was asking for the feedback. I was wanting a reaction so that I could gauge how, what I could do better, or I don't know. But like, I, it wasn't my dream to become a musician or have it as my profession. And so then when, uh, when uh, JS16 and his, his company, 16 Inch Records, signed me, like literally overnight, over two, three week period from a, a you know, student and part-time uh, computer repair guy, I became a, a releasing and performing artist. It's just like that. And um, again, another another one thing that I can claim now, one of my strengths as an artist has been that I was able to uh, capitalize what happened. Like uh, Sandstorm then happened um, Meaning, I made the track, and then J16 picked it up, and uh, we we perfected it together. It was released, but the the release was first slow, but then when it gained momentum and and became a you know international hit, I was able to capitalize on that, and I've been working my ass off. And while it's been still my biggest hit, but but that's what started everything, and I jumped in. 110 percent and i mean that's why i'm still here because i i wasn't sort of um i don't know pull, putting on the brakes or or i did nothing else but just like oh next gig next interview next this and that anything anybody wanted 
offer me regarding music, I would sort of be willing to do it. And uh, that what was what sort of created, generated my name and secured the connections and network and, and fan base, I guess, as well. I read somewhere that there was, uh, you know, for the old people, they remember mp3.com, that you mm. uploaded yeah. the, the, the track there. And that had yeah. some part of at least for the, was it the US success or the overall success of the popularity. And you were probably the first one who sort of was discovered from there. Yeah, that's how the story goes. Oh, that's how uh, the story goes. I see. <laughs> no, it, it, it is no, it, it is true. But so the the UK record company uh, Neo Records at that time, uh, who signed me for a global global deal, and then they uh, licensed me further to U- different territories. Um, they uh, did find me on MP3.com. That is true. At the same time, though, we had sent them a twelve-inch vinyl. Okay. Th- as well, and. It, it, I actually don't know, and it doesn't matter. It was highly possible that they did find it on mp3.com first. But it was not like the Twitch crowd before Twitch, like the mp3 crowd, you know, sort of, you know, pick it up and, hey, there's a lot of downloads coming from, from this. Not really, no, because also we took it down quite quickly. Uh, so I had more of my old stuff on mp3.com way before that, like a couple of years before sandstorm uh and so it was just natural for me to upload it there as well my label actually didn't uh, like it yako yako wasn't a fan because we were i was giving the music away for free which is sort of true and it was really early times for that kind of stuff then um so i took it down at some point quite quickly when it looked like you know we were getting uh traction in different territories and then we were starting to work with or or when i say we i say obviously 16 inch records but i was you know i am friends with yako and i was sort of getting a very very you know it was their company and i had nothing to do with the actual company of course but i was very much in the everyday of me being the artist and yako was my producer and i knew a lot of the record company stuff that was going on so that's why we but so we um uh started talking with neo records uh and i think i quite quickly we took down the mp3.com's sandstorm stuff um uh so we can basically but, conclude that it was so good song that it picked up in the right time it was not just like there was some technology stuff that you were like the first to twitch uh you know streamer <laughs> or first in youtube no, or but, first in twitter the- or whatnot I know, but but you know what's cool about this? It's it makes a really really good story, and and they, so Neo Records they were really good at marketing. They were really good at picking on uh, picking up stuff that would make a good story, like a news item. And in fact, uh, the MP3 thing it is so it, it's 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 a fact that they did. Uh, I was on MP3.com and they did find me there. But it, like I said, I don't know. I guess they then got the MP3 file first. But they, we, we sent them the vinyl as well. But so I was on BBC, uh, their like main news show in the morning, interviewed about the MP3 thing, okay. which no. obviously was a spin by the record company fed to them. And uh, I've been sort of called in UK, uh, BBC, like the first one to be found on mp3.com. And I don't know if that's true or not. Like, 
Maybe there's a record company that signed another artist the same way before me or after. I don't know. But, but that's what was the news item at that point. And that's sort of cool because, like you said, um, I, well, I wasn't the first artist on Twitch music creator side, but I was one of the first ones there. So uh, I embraced the MP3 technology back then and then Twitch and whatnot. So, I, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't look bad on me to have been among the first or, you know. There was also something magical happening in Finland at the time. Unfortunately, I was uh, abroad uh, at mm. that time, but, you know, there was Nokia happening. But then there was also the um, your music video that was done mm. by, you know, you were also JS60's first, I understood, the first artist for the label. So, yes. yeah, the music video director, Yusa Syria, um, who, who I know as well, uh, he, it was his first video. Obviously, he has been done stuff before, but it was the first music video he did. So, so it seems to be that there was like a lot of, I don't know, is it beginner's luck or is it just a good taste or what happened there? It was just something in the, in the water. Yeah, all of the above, I think. Um, first of all, uh the, the circles in finland are so small really when it comes to that like um let me try and quickly sort of recap that so you was uh, a vj at a at a club uh he was part of the the screen crew that was part of the it was screen club uh, there was misko iho who's also uh, now very seasoned professional in the in the video uh field film field so they were partners in vjing and they were they would be the ones who would were actually behind my first two music videos um what's the second one the, the field the beat feel the beat yeah no. and then there was um a the the guy running uh the guard guy running no, in sandstone no. video was actually Losing a bouncer gun. yeah was actually a bouncer <laughs> at that club <laughs> uh, uh i believe his name is jonas um and i'm sorry jonas uh even having to think of that but uh we haven't been in contact but now he's actually a the pretty big character in um, in the restaurant and club scene in helsinki and you also, by uh, the way is now directing in, in netflix as well you know international oh, yeah. you know tv yes. tv series border town. check yeah. out border town there's a new one. He just made a rap maybe a few days ago. I don't yes, remember the name. Yes, exactly. What was that name? Uh Drum or something like that. Yes, it's also some sort of a drime, uh, crime drama thing. And um, so it w- it was all like this clubbing circle that fed into this, um, well, then prof- also professional music video creation thing. That, um, but But it was like just tiny little uh crew of talented people who pulled in their friends and and acquaintances and and continuing that so feel the beat music video was shot up north in lapland near the norwegian border and if you go to youtube and check out the video there's a the small cabin that we're it's in the wilderness and we're partying all of that crew is basically people friends of the production crew who were clubbers and we just like enlisted them to come. And uh, I have lifelong friends now from, from even that trip 
for people who I didn't know before, because I wasn't actually a clubber in the Helsinki scene that way. I, I, I've been to Helsinki, of course, going out and whatnot, but, but I wasn't part of any of that circle, really, because I didn't live in Helsinki. And um, like you said, something in the water, luck, but, but I think talent and then people um, without any sort of you know, fears or prejudice or anything, like just jumping in and, hey, let's do this thing. This is cool. And, and then you know, it all came together uh, if if you can find, you should check out the Vice documentary uh, story of Sandstorm, because it's it will support this talk as well. Uh, there's some some stuff with user where they're uh, reminiscing about and yeah, I refer to the missing gun. If you if you see the guy running yeah. down the stairs, you know user is revealing there that you know uh, yeah between the shots there you know something disappears. Yes, and um, there, there's a couple of those funny sort of errors as well if you look at the girl running and jumping over the fence uh in sandstone music video there's a i don't remember if it's after a cut or if it's the same shot but the camera goes further and there's actually an open gate right there <laughs> but, uh you know could have could have gone there but it looked better when she was jumping um at the same time, I remember JS16 was having another artist coming from Finland who had also quite famous video as well, you know, done in the Helsinki Metro. Did yeah. actually user did that video as well, or did you have anything to do with that? And you can reveal I the artist who I'm referring no. to. Yeah, Bomb Funk MCs. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with uh, any of that really, other than we, we were uh, both produced by JS and uh, Jaakko. Obviously, writing-wise is half of Bomb Funks as well. And um, uh, honestly, I don't remember who directed or, or produced their videos. Uh, that you know, I wasn't a part of that, so um, w don't can't can't claim that I know. But uh, yeah, that that music video of the the well freestyler especially that's that's an iconic one. But they had a really cool series of videos. There was Uprocking Beats and uh, B Boys Fly Girls before Freestyler, and Freestyler sort of was uh, is their biggest hit. But it was was it maybe the fourth single or fifth single of that album, and uh, it it was sort of a su surprise success for everybody. I guess was a surprise. But um, what an amazing track. I cannot help but think that uh, maybe Taya 16 is Finland's Dennis Pop, Max Martin. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt, he is. Yeah. And there's actually a connection as well. Uh, if, if you guys who are listening to this don't know what we're talking about, check out Netflix uh, series called This is Pop, and they have a Swedish episode. And it's an excellent one, and, and we're referring to that one now. Yeah. So definitely check it out. Uh, but there's also a connection between Max Marning and Dennis Pop to you. And, okay. and that's actually something which is obviously a loose connection. But, but you know, um, you were a rude boy at one point in time. Mm -hmm. Can you just briefly, you know, tell what is that about? <laughs> and then I revealed uh, the connection. Yeah, well, okay, yeah, cool. Now I, now I got the connection. <laughs> um, so so um, my artist name, uh, Darude, comes from... Uh, a Swedish singer Leila Kay's song called Rude Boys. And um, let's just say uh, that I was um, 
quite <clears throat> happy uh, at a pre-party at my friend's house a long time ago, sometime 98 probably, or something like that, maybe 97. Uh, we were going out that night, just, you know, bunch of students, uh, classmates, and um, I wasn't a DJ, but they had a turntable and they had a, the record, Rude Boys, and I think... Being in my happy state that I was, I think I played it like seven times in a row and my buddy started teasingly calling me Rude Boy. And so I just adopted that name that got stuck. Uh, I started using it like the early uh, IRC chat and whatever I would, you know, log into online, which wasn't actually that many things in 90. Seven or something like that. Um, but I started using Rude Boy, and even uh, my couple of first things that you uh, actually mentioned, mp3.com, that were uploaded there, uh, I used the artist name Rude Boy. But because, you know, uh, that sort of refers to different kind of music, you know, dance hall and raga and whatnot, um, I then later dropped the boy because i didn't want to be a boy and then the different type of music so it was da rude separately and then um when sandstorm my first actual official single was coming out the the graphics that were made uh, by sampo hanninen a graphics artist from helsinki this is actually not that logo but i'm still showing this uh he put the rude together because it was da and then capital r uh, separately earlier and uh, as a logo it looked a lot better on the cover and uh, I was just like okay cool let's do that and um, so again happenstances and different things and uh, I, I got a name and what's really cool is that when you punch the root in google right now it still is pretty much a unique thing um, there's a couple of like indian words that have similar sounds or are spelled about the same or whatnot but but it's a unique word and i consider myself really lucky that way as well because if you are an artist upcoming right now and want to find yourself a good artist name and try to figure one out it's really 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 freaking difficult and uh, so a lot of happenstance happened and and i have a unique artist name that basically google searches now point only to me or stuff that i've done um Except yeah. there are yeah. a couple of horses and a couple of cows that are the root or the root something these days. Uh, going back to the connection, obviously it was yeah. uh, Dennis Pop and Max Martin who actually produced the Leila K. And uh, one thing I have to also ask about this, then we can move on. Um, Out of Control is the name of your one of your uh, songs, and you know, Electric has. Yep also is there a connection or is it just a you know happenstance no that's uh, there's no connection in that um i i absolutely get what you're saying uh but it's just the out of control uh words basically if you uh if you check out those tracks um there's no like melodic uh similarity there's actually now that you say there's the in Leila K electric out of control that that goes like high but the the rhythm and the melody is not the same even in that part and uh out of control 
uh, the first release on the album was actually an instrumental that had a, a vocoded out of control uh, thing that is from a sample CD of uh, of that time. So it had absolutely no relation initially, and uh, or doesn't at all. But then. Um, for the actual single release of the track Out of Control, uh, we found a singer through our British record company, Neo Records, who, um, who uh, wrote the lyrics for the song, and then Tammy Marie sang them. And, uh, well, I actually have no way of knowing if she had heard Layla Kay's Out of Control at that point, but, I mean, the tracks are not similar at all, so I don't actually think so. But it's, it's sort of a cool connection because uh, I was definitely a Layla Kay fan at that point. And uh, I think I like uh, Electric even, even more than I do Rude Boys. So it's a really, yeah, it's really an cool song. Track. And, and, yeah. and that's sort of the Swedish secret. It started with the DJ who couldn't basically play any instrument, then it's pop in the 80s. And, mm-hmm. and then he got together magical. Uh, crew of people and, and they started to produce these global hits and they just kept on doing it and obviously there's already i don't know fourth generation third generation of of artists and producers who are actually just sort of results of, of all the work they have done and Incredible. that's just amazing yeah yeah I, I i highly recommend checking out the like you said the documentary because so now that um i just actually watched it a little while ago and they also refer to abba in that documentary and, and you have uh, a connection to abba as well but in a different way uh, <laughs> yours goes to 2019 and you were where you sort of the opposite of what they did so you know at the time there was no twitch there was no mp3 so they went to the european you know song contest and they yeah. won it and, and that's how they pretty much came you know yeah and i and I went there and I did not win. So, <laughs> um, but you way, were the most th- popular, you know, it was the popularity contest in Finland, wasn't it? The selection, at least partly. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Eurovision, uh, I, if I, if I could just go to the contest, I would do that again in a heartbeat. It was amazing. Both the Finnish part of it and, and the, um, well, we were in Tel Aviv in Israel was amazing the, all the setting and everything was great but it's quite a grueling um year to do eurovision you uh you first have to make the tracks um and in a normal year you actually have to qualify in finland to be the representative of course which you wouldn't know but uh for a couple of years in finland we had it so that the representative was selected internally which I was a lucky one in, in 2019 to get that um, honor. And so we, uh, myself and I, I asked Seb- uh, my singer buddy, Sebastian Raymond, to join me uh, to take on the thing. And uh, we made three songs and uh, one of them was picked, Look Away was picked to be the representing song in, in Tel Aviv. But the whole, you know, we started in September 2018. I produced the songs over the next two three months by christmas we were quite done with the songs early january they were mastered music videos were made uh and from then on end of january when the 
my representation was publicized. It was just interviews, practices for the next five months till till May, and it was pretty damn uh, grueling representing your country. And people don't know that. And I'm not complaining. Don't get me wrong. It was amazing. But but if I'd had to do it again, um, I'm not sure if I would take the job unless I got to uh, I don't know tweak a couple of things here and there if, you know re- regarding all the promo and all that kind of stuff but uh, what an amazing experience i would uh, any artist wanting to do it whether you're finnish or or from other european country that is eligible i would highly recommend it because it's uh it's a unique experience and it, it's such a it's quite big time when you when you get to the international contest and and see the production and get to be in the Eurovision bubble. Highly recommended. Going back to the Swedish um, pop machine or uh, success machine, uh, what was actually quite amazing, it was in that Netflix episode, but I don't know how many picked it up, but you know, Dennis Pop was doing the, the production and he was just basically doing the, the songs um, and he was also DJing a lot. So he did something in the daytime, then he went to the club and then he was checking, you know, almost like to the beat that, you know, what is working, what is not working. Then he went back to tweak it and, and put it back and, and did it that, you know, many times. And that's basically like uh, outside development being really like, you know, uh, just getting the feedback from the market and, and doing it even with, without the lyrics. Have yes. you experienced a similar type of way of doing and, and, Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, I think the way. So obviously, I wasn't there, but I've I've heard stories and I've seen that documentary as well. Um, I think he uh, he probably was naturally doing that. Like, um, and uh, if I understood it correctly, he wasn't even that um, much of a hands-on producer. He knew his way around the studio, but he had uh, people who were at the actual, you know. Yeah, he, he was know, really good at picking the talented yeah. young people. Yes, and he he was really good at telling what sounded good, what worked. Like you said, he went to the club that night. Back then, it was a little more difficult too because you either had to have early on you had to have your own like a vinyl press or acetate carving thing so, so as to play stuff. But they probably at some point had maybe dat tapes or and then later on, obviously CDs. But uh, I don't know uh, what was available for them at that time. But but either way, you know that's that's how uh, in in other countries and you know other people started too as DJs. DJs were initially only record players. They just put on a piece of music and played it. Some spoke something and swapped the record, and then then later on, you know, beat match- matching was. Uh, discovered or invented and djs became more of the creating the the whole fluent thing the whole night and then djs realized that hey if i extend this part and if i extend that part and they became kind of like live remixers and whatever and then they started using their tape machines and loop things and actually started creating music and because they have a direct connection to the dance floor what made people move. And this is what happens uh, basically for me all the time now, but early on, it was probably 
it wasn't that obvious maybe for many people, but Dennis Pop and their team discovered that, uh, you know, sort of uh, universal fact that, yeah, music can be maybe heard and you can fall in love with piece of music just hearing it on a radio, but but especially the kind of music they were making, it needed to have a sort of physical reaction in, on the dance floor. And, and uh, while I'm not saying I'm Dennis Pop and, uh, you know, have his, his wizardry or, or Max Martin's, but Sandstorm was one of those tracks that came about exactly that way. Um, I wasn't the DJ myself, but around the time, 97, 98, 99, I would actually go to clubs several nights a week, sober, uh, wasn't really doing anything. Maybe I saw a friend or two slapped a fi high five, but I would be in a corner somewhere listening. I would uh, make friends with some of the DJs and I got to sit in their DJ booth and, and watch what they were doing. And I got to see tracks being played and what worked and how the you know crowd reacted. And I would basically run home to my computer and start making stuff. Like with those vibes carried over from the club. And then later on, when I started actually, you know, I started pouring myself. Uh, I was a live act, so I played only my music in the beginning. And then later on, I started DJing as well. And when I started DJing other people's music as well, I got a direct comparison playing my track than playing somebody else's track. First of all, mix-wise, how they sound, then how the vibe changes for the better or worse, this and that. And so many times, even today, when I come off a gig and I go back to the hotel room, I'm like, well, I played that track and that track. And so then I listen to them again in a controlled environment and I try to mix in like in, in my computer and in my, my hotel room. And often I open my song project and, you know, the bass was a little loud. The bass was a little quiet, the hi-hats, blah, blah, blah. Or I change like a melodic or rhythmic pattern just based on that night's play at a club. And it's crucial for a DJ, uh, electronic dance music producer, but but apparently for pop acts as well. And I mean, there were several things in that documentary where they, you know, with Backstreet Boys and whoever they, they were working with, where they clearly, like, they tried the instrumentals before they even had vocals, and the instrumentals had to work on their own before they put the vocals on, and this and that. And it's, um, you can't, like, you know, stress that enough. It's, it's one thing to sit here and like a thing and think how it might work and what would work about it, but then when you actually press that play button and see a live crowd react. And I mean, they vote with their feet. You know, they either stay, go nuts, they might not do anything, but they stay, or they leave, or, you know, it crowd things out. And and it's a very interesting and sometimes really stressful thing, too, to play something out the first time. They also mentioned that, uh, well, oftentimes the master is basically hidden. Uh, the simplicity is actually hiding the complexity underneath mm -hmm. like also with the i think they call it melodic math that how do you how do you if you have a uh, lots of notes in a verse then you have a few in chorus and and basically sort of making harmony and and you know sort of making yeah. it 
really good. The other thing which they mentioned as well was that um, because they are not uh, you know, natives in English, um, oftentimes the lyrics were quite simple, and, and that's a good thing mm. if you want to reach a lot of uh, global yeah. audience in, uh, in 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 mass. So there's a lot of these <laughs> things <laughs> put together yeah. that sometimes you need to be an outsider coming from Sweden or coming from Salo or coming coming somewhere which is not exactly in the in the center of something to to, yeah. to make it to work. Yeah, I'm laughing because um, so. Well, first of all, in the documentary, I referring back to that all the time, but that I want it bad that way. Um, that that one song is actually one of my favorite songs out of an, any any boy band ever. I want it that way. Um, and then nobody knows what they want that way. Like that's just a line in the song that doesn't really mean anything. Or like the Wonderwall. And and everyone. If they know that song, uh, there's "Tell Me Why" and then there's "I Want It That Way," but nobody knows. But a lot of people have created their own stories. That's, that's the, the way magic, I want it, isn't it? Because you're not exactly making so, it clear. Exactly, and um, uh, in Finland, one of the things that sometimes apparently hinders us is um, our. Uh, our accent in English is often harsh. It's it's rough around the edges and it's hard to get rid of it because basically the physical way we talk, our tongues work different ways in Finnish than English is spoken or whatever. And we are very, very particular about it. Like if we sing and we hear a tinge of the Finnish accent, it's, dude, that's horrible, you know, for us. But then we hear like somebody from Spain singing something in english and that's a global hit all of a sudden because nobody cares really we do just we think that there's something inferior about our accent maybe it's not the prettiest but it's still like it's way 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 too overstressed that it should be you know smoother or fluent or non-finished sounding and and the same with the lyrics like there's so many hit records that have been huge in Finland or in Scandinavia that are from Central Europe and Southern Europe that make no sense or are horrible English, but we sing our hearts out to them because it's just a catchy song and nobody really cares. It's If the music piece of music is good, harmonically stirs emotions, who cares what the lyrics exactly are? in some cases, because it just gives you good vibes and that's enough. Now, after more than 20 years, uh, when you started uh, first uh, realized what a tracker is, uh, do you have a sense uh, what sort of works? And obviously people are also changing, times are changing. Um, maybe it's our generation thinks that 90s was the, you know, the really good music time and, and the later on, you know, maybe not so much so, you know, different. Uh, do you have a sense now that you know what might work or are you any better than when you started in in that sense <laughs> um <laughs> i mean predicting mm, that you know what do you think that's gonna work and um in terms of uh well so there's so many things i'm technically mm, i'm technically a hundred times better as a producer now when it comes to and when I say production, by the way, 
um, I mean, making a track from start to finish, whether it's me alone writing it or whether they're singers and whatnot. But, but you know, as an electronic dance music producer, you often are involved in all parts of the process, writing and then uh, the actual production, tinkering, playing the instruments in, programming, um, recording the vocals, mixing, which is often called engineering as well, and then even mastering sometimes. And then you technically can send from this studio, you can send a track to a, a distributor that puts it on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. But in a traditional record industry, so Dennis Pop was a producer and a DJ, but a producer. And then he would have had those engineers or sort of other kind of producers who would play the keys or, or, um, you know, record something. Uh, and I'm, I'm generalizing, maybe Dennis Pop was an actual hands-on producer as well. I don't know. I wasn't there, but, but there's so many things like a producer can sit on a couch and do nothing other than say, this is good. That is good. Try this, try that. And, um, so as a whole, I am definitely probably better in every area of my music making and production. Uh, but one thing that I sometimes wish that I, I had uh, like a button for is like, I'd like to forget anything and everything. I, I'd like to forget expectations or outside pressure or even if not pressure, but influences that are like not relevant for the for the music creation process. Uh, because back then, I was expecting nothing. I I wanted to make music because I loved tinkering. I loved sounds. I loved the the discovery basically, and I loved to find the next thing and the next thing and then like. Those were not, I wasn't thinking of them as steps getting better, but th that's what they basically were. Like I studied other people's music. I, I wrote shit down and I, I dissected things. And then when I found out that you can do hi-hat this way and clap that way, then I could try the same thing on my own track. Um, and that was just so pure. So, so there wasn't an, an agenda outside of anything. So that's what I hope that I was better at today, leaving everything outside the studio or outside the creation process, which I've actually gotten better at systematically trying to, um, trying to do that. And then, like I said earlier, exposing myself more in a creation process, because that somehow makes me uh, like, you know, ha streaming my, my, working sometimes which i haven't done in a long time for a reason or another uh but but that helped me forget like what i should be doing according to something or somebody or what i shouldn't but i was just like tinkering and there are um when you are getting your living out of something like creating music selling it using it to sell gigs it automatically steers you to direction this one day direction that one day and um the only really big significant silver lining i found in the coronavirus 
epidemic, pandemic, and, and the lockdowns have been that because I've been streaming from the studio here and because I don't have the crowd physically in front of me going crazy to a certain type of build up and drop, um, and they're actually listening in their living rooms or in their headphones on their way to work or whatever. Um, it seems people are actually listening to the music and they are not expecting the big drop. They're not so much of the physicality of music, but they are actually feeling it and the emotions are there and the feedback according to that. And that's made me actually structure my DJ sets a little more loosely. I played way more wide variety of music in my DJ sets. And, um, when I'm on the road, uh, night to night, city to city, two gigs, you know, Friday and Saturday could actually be like 70, 80% of the same music. I don't have a set playlist. I, I don't do it like that. Uh, but I have the same active track sort of going on. So it's easily like, I remember from last night, oh, I played these two tracks together. They worked really well. Then I bridged it with that one to there. And I could do say 10 minutes, the same that I did the night before. But with the streaming crowd, it's a global crowd. Then from gig to gig, I could have the same people listening. So I never play the same stuff. Like now I've actually made a point of replaying one track a set so but what i do is i have this active playlist and i once i played a track in the end of the session i've actually delete all those tracks that were in my active playlist so that i won't play them again and so my every set that i play is different now and um that's because it's accepted and my success of that night or that set here, the streaming set, is not how crazy people went. So I don't have to like hone in the most effective tracks or combos or build-ups. And that has steered me to way more musical and a way more feeling-based music creation. So sort of back to towards what I was doing in the beginning more. And it's not that I've done stuff that I don't want to, uh along the years not at all i've done exactly the music that i want to but because next weekend is a gig and i'm thinking of that gig and that dance floor effect then that steers my thinking directly how effective is the build-up and what is the melody going to be and how is that sound going to be versus now that i have sort of more musical freedom in my head because there's no drop expectation that's what i call it so a lot of my stuff that i've produced in the last year and a half um is actually not they're still dance floor oriented music but it's not necessarily high impact high energy but there's more groove there's more push and pull i, I don't know how to describe it and some of them are dance floor bangers, but but there's a lot of more sort of down tempo stuff that I've or lower tempo stuff that I've previously made, and um, it's been really cool and really inspiring because out of the forced situation, something good has you know you know come, and and it's going to be exciting and and interesting to put some of those new tracks out sometime soon by the way 
And uh, the beautiful thing is that even if I think that this track is now like lower tempo and not as high impact, I can of course always remix it to be a, a you know high impact you know dancefloor version. So so that's been you know you know best of both worlds I can have there. But but I wouldn't necessarily do all of that uh, the lower tempo way first if it weren't for the lockdown. Yeah, so basically removing the dance floor because of circumstances, changing the music. Yeah. And then there's also another aspect of it, the TikTok effect. Has it somehow, you know, you have to put it in the 20 seconds, five seconds, and people only remember something like that from a song. Is, is that sort of counter effect on the... Well, it is, but it's not for me. Um uh, I have a TikTok account. Uh, my team has posted some TikTok stuff, but frankly, I hate feeling old or out of touch, but I, I don't get TikTok the same way that a lot of people do and use it to their huge advantage. Of course, I'm not mocking the platform, but but for me, um, th the way that I've been actually planning on on using TikTok at some point is like start doing these shorts but not a joke kind of way or not a viral aspiration kind of way, but just maybe finding an audience there as well, doing um, maybe how to tune a kick drum and then it's in, in 20 seconds or Education, whatever. another way. Uh, yes, and do like uh, a million of those because there's a million of those that I could do in, um, you know, tiny little short blips that, you know, the time frame allows in in tiktok because i you know obviously you can do several but but i think the format works best in that maybe there might be like one more like you know one or two videos but not like a story uh i have an I idea know. for you you know since you've been i guess you've been skating for a long time but now you're posting mm -hmm. a lot of these skate videos and mm -hmm. you're really showing what you're doing and falling over a lot and you know experimenting uh, maybe you become famous in tiktok with your skate videos and and you know some people know you from the skateboarding and and not from uh, you know yeah he actually did something else it was some rude something <laughs> The, I, I would love that, but I think my, my downfall literally there is that um, I'm not that good at skateboarding because... But maybe that's uh, not the point. Maybe uh, it's just I, funny. I, I know. <laughs> that's true, but the well, then I would have to edit twice because for for the current for the current stuff that I post on on uh, Twitter and Insta. I actually edit the good parts in and leave the the worst parts out. Though I don't shy away from falling, I I've definitely have some falling over stuff there as well. But maybe I should just do like a falling reel on. If if you want to see me fall, just go to TikTok. Maybe that's it. And um, there would be a lot of that content, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's. It's it's not a bad idea, and uh, I've actually, I honestly, so I have thought of how I could use TikTok to my advantage, and it's not that I couldn't put like sort of serious stuff there, and I know some people do, but a lot of the um, sort of good channels and and the viral TikTok stuff, they do have a fun angle or something weird or or and um, 
it still is not quite clear to me what is so different from say TikTok and Insta stories. Like why? And now like you know uh, YouTube have their shorts as well. So it's strange that on some platforms they work first, then one tries the same format, but it doesn't pick up the same way. Though YouTube, for instance, has its own mass of people anyway, and uh, the shorts has been picking up quite quite well. I guess now I'm I'm seeing a lot of um, those uh, YouTube shorts, you know, popping in in viral feeds and stuff. But it, it's so kind of as as an artist and to, for my team, we're trying to figure them out, like. And then the algorithms sometimes change. You know, YouTube does a different setting or a different thing. And then, you know, stuff that you worked on for six months and now you've got a steady flow of whatever working. And then all of a sudden, like, it goes 200% down your engagement or whatever. It's kind of weird and frustrating at times, too. What's the future of uh, money making in, in uh, you know, creative? Well, it's hmm. especially music that's been like that. It was so set with the LPs. You have to put that out, you know, put some bunch to bundle package some songs together and, and then you sell that as, as a package and then yeah. games, the CDs, MP3s and streaming. And, and, you know, it's becoming like a huge mess. And there's a well, uh, it, it's, you know, times change. I try to not be too angry or too caught up with but you need some angry bird stuff as well <laughs> yeah i did <laughs> I, I i try not to be like too caught up in in the it's natural for me to be like uh, well that used to work Shit, uh, uh, and then um i tend to be you know whatever pissed off for a while but then it, it doesn't help in the end like i can be pissed off for the rest of my life but that doesn't change anything because Bigger things are the things that affect how something goes, and <clears throat> there's no way I can change it. So then you have to adapt. And um, your question about financials, uh, making music in the future, is a fucking good question. Pardon my bleep, my French. Um, because there, uh, you know, stuff like this pandemic now has obviously put a kink on a lot of artists and DJs um, income uh, stream there's uh, you know Spotify's and Apple Music's that are not in most cases bringing in the cash like they used to meaning your music used to when you were selling records or CDs and um, there's so many sides to that, and I uh, there's never been a better time to be a music lover and consumer than it is now. You can get anything and everything exactly for free if you want to, and if you want to have a little bit more freedom of your track choices right then and there and better quality and whatnot, then you'll pay your whatever, Spotify or some other service, you know, membership premium fee and for freaking 10 bucks a month you get any and every track in the world or you just go youtube it no better time also as a music producer starting and gear wise and and access wise to gadgets and software 
you know, I've laughed at people for the last 10 years when they come to me like, well, here's my track, but it kind of doesn't sound too good because I don't have the uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, if you have a cell phone, you basically have all the gear you need to do quality music gear wise has nothing to do with gear anymore. Like it's maybe your headset or monitors, but nothing else really is about gear if we're talking about electronic music. Like in your, um, when you did the Sandstorm, we were always coming back to Sandstorm, but uh, that's the where the most stuff I've been researching, so I, I know most about. But you, you did it live, the mixing, the you needed to do it live because it wasn't possible uh, to do yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. There were, yeah, well, there were many, many, many uh, levels to Sandstorm or many, many phases because initially, uh, a couple, almost like two years before Sandstorm was made and released, I did the do-do-do melody already, but then it didn't go anywhere. So then... In 99 uh, August, I sort of refound it and created the track around it. Then I had the demo of it, which a couple of Turku DJs played in Turku clubs. But then um, it wasn't until I gave that to J16 and then we recreated it uh, like with his better equipment than, you know, since in, in his studio. It's the same track, but it sounds better. It's uh, the arrangement changed a little bit and whatnot. You know, Jakos taking part in all of that and finding me that's a key factor in everything but but the the final mix of the sandstorm as you hear it now uh it's so funny because that would never happen today but um so it's if you know production a little bit Something like this gadget here is actually what was used in, in Sandstorm. Not this particular unit, but the same synth, uh, Nord Lead 2. Uh, when you tweak the filters and knobs and they change the sound, you can actually record their movements as data into the computer sequencer that you use. But in Yako's case, there was something off uh, that we couldn't actually do that. So while we were making the track, we would change the filters and whatnot, and it would change the sound. For instance, in the second buildup, this guy comes in. There's this arpeggiated bass pattern that filter opens and feels great and sounds great. But normally today, you would just draw automation of that uh, parameter change curve on your computer screen with a mouse. You could even make it first like with manual movements but then you usually smooth it over or you just use your mouse to do it well th that wasn't possible so there was five or six parameters that we needed to change during that mix down so it was a rack like this actually another synth jo roland jp8080 that is down here was one of the other things that we were changing and there were four hands on these stuff and as the track was playing from the sequencer and being recorded through a analog mixer to a dat tape we would do the filter uh fades and and tweaks live and uh it's a really sort of cool factoid now because when you listen to it and there's whatever is happening it's it was us turning the knobs and uh it's kind of cool that it's an electronic dance music piece that mostly is programmed like it's the drum hits and everything. Nobody really played them, but it was programmed. Notes put in certain places and whatever. But then there's an actual live aspect to it. So it's kind of cool uh, to think about it back. And I've tried to actually implement more hardware workflow in my current 
workflow here. So I have a, um, a Logic Pro based studio setup. It's everything is pretty much in my computer. Uh, and uh, there's virtual synths there and virtual effects units and everything like that. But I do have a couple of hardware synths in the studio and I try to actually use them, not because they sound better, not because anything, but it's it's cool and nice and inspiring to tweak actual knobs. And that's what I've been sort of bringing back to my workflow. And one of the aspects too is that when you have an external piece of kit that creates generates sound, you have to have it in the computer at some point, like uh, not just coming through a sort of a live mix. So you have to record it to the computer as audio. So you have to actually at some point commit to that melody or that baseline or whatever it is. And um, when you have everything available sort of live in a music project, you can just go back and tweak and tweak and tweak and change that melody and this melody when it's sort of just notes. But when it's recorded as audio, you've committed to certain piece of melody or whatever. And that's something that I try to do more these days. So I don't have as easy of an opportunity to go back and retweak something. And I don't know if, if people can relate, but whatever you do, like writing or drawing or, or making music, um, the possibilities are endless these days with technology, but it also gives you a possibility to get lost in tweaking the last 2% forever and never get anything done. And I've, uh, I've been trapped into that several times myself, and now I try to avoid that by sort of having sort of stepping stones where I technically can, of course, go back, but the hassle is too much. And then when I have the thought of, then I realize I committed to that melody for a reason. And now it's part of the track and now I go forward. So I'll get the track done one day. So it's not about technology. It's basically going back to basics, you know, learn your yes. stuff, do good stuff. Yeah. Yes. And the rest will sort of sort it out itself. Uh, I have, I have one golden, uh, sort of, tip to anybody almost all the daws digital audio workstations the the sequences softwares have uh these days like a favorites folder for your plugins for your effects and synths that you're using um when if i go through my plugin folder so all the effects and synths and everything i think i have like 800 plugins or something like that whatever, this crazy amount that I've accumulated over the years, some free, some paid. Um, and uh, it's just a nightmare to go through a long list of, hey, which synths should I use right now? You get lost easily to that. And I highly, highly recommend thinking of, I don't know, uh, whatever fits for you, but say five synthesizers. If you need different types of sounds, or if you associate different type of sound with that synth is a bass synthesizer and that's a lead synthesizer, just do that. Put a couple of those in your favorites folder. The same with equalizers. You don't need 18 equalizers. You need two or three for taste. Like different visual looks give you different feelings. Uh, you think that that equalizer is better for low end or high end or that is big for uh that's good for like big picture and that is 
good for surgical EQing, for instance, compressors, anything. Just pick two or three and just use those. And I swear the, the music making process gets way less uh, tedious and way less like sidetracky because it, it's not about the gear. Almost all the gear can do whatever you want it to do. It's just you need to select it and just use it. And why I'm saying is because I've had a huge issue with wasting tons and tons of time and effort into just sidetracking left and right all the time, realizing hours later, oh, oh, wait, I was working on this piece of music and I'm somewhere totally different right now. I think we can probably, maybe, maybe that's the thing nowadays that there's so much you know, artist you can select. I heard somewhere that, you know, half of the, maybe more of the Spotify songs in the catalog, they never been played once. So there's so many artists, there's so much to consume. You can basically, you know, just get, get lost in there, but it's pretty much the same thing in all the other stuff. Everything is so easy to do nowadays that it's, it's so easy to get lost. And, and that's why you have to be a bit more unique. You have to find your way of doing, just focus on your things start with the basics and get something done and then hopefully get lucky as well. Yep. I, I, I agree with all of that. I think, um, I think, like I said, the, as a consumer, it's the best time, but for an artist, the only, well, not the only, but the one downside of all of this amazing technology, which I'm a huge proponent of, by the way, I, I love my tech, I, everything. Um, is that as an artist, sometimes now it feels that people are just going from that one hit record to the next hit record and they don't sort of know or care of who created what uh, because it's all up for grabs all the time, anywhere and everywhere. And so sometimes as an artist, I feel that um, like the journey, uh, the bigger package, say the full album, gets lost like you said um not all the tracks are listened to maybe at all and that's a pity because i like i grew up and i know you as well uh you know we listened to full albums and we read the liner notes and there was there was sort of more you bought an album you you felt ownership and you felt you know deeper maybe about the music and that way about the artist as well but um but i don't i that that's not only a downside because through the technology you also have way much more possibility to find new ones that you would have never ever come across with the old school sort of analog way yeah i think it's progress and like anything and, and coming back to think of you know the lyrics for example the 60s 70s 80s songs you know coming you know reading them in the also in the albums mm. having just a few radio stations you know globally usually just in, in any nation you have less so you know the meaning for the for the lyrics go also a bit deeper and then in the you know 90s start to be wonder walls and whatnot so the, the 2000s mm. they don't mean that much anymore uh, but, but going back, you know, even further, you know, jazz music was sort of radical stuff. Classical music was the radical stuff, you know, at the time, mm. Mozart. And so that's, yeah. that's how it goes. And we just have to be on the right. Yeah. What is your favorite word? Oh, wow. So 
went back and forth with this, but I'll go with a, with a, an obvious one, love. And um, I, I did think of a little bit of a story here. Um, not all these words, by the way, will have a story, so don't worry. But um, as a Finn growing up and as my family, uh, I, I don't think I ever heard anybody use the word love or in Finnish rakkaus. Uh, it wasn't like this American movie thing. I love you, father. I love you, son, kind of thing at all. It was more like F you and F you sort of thing. Not really, but, but you know, reading between the lines. And, um, but there was a lot of love in our family, of course. That's not it. But it, it's, it wasn't the thing that you would verbalize, really. So, so fast forward a couple of decades and I, I found um found my wife in America and uh you know we didn't get uh we, we didn't start dating immediately but later when we did and um the first thing that was sort of awkward to me or, or caught my ear was when she was talking with her mom or dad on the phone and she always ended the phone call with uh, I love you and and even hearing that made me feel uncomfortable and it wasn't me saying it it was just strange and uh, i i thought of my relationship with the word or with verbalizing one's love to somebody why, why was it such a big deal but it wasn't just something i was used to and i i also felt or feel that it wasn't it's not that common necessarily in every family in finland maybe it's just a language thing or maybe it's a cultural thing i don't know but so over time uh i heard it all the time and then over time i uh it was just one time on the phone when i told my wife i you know said i love you in the end of the phone call and she was smart enough not to make it a big deal but then uh i don't know just since that one day i guess it happened on the phone and i i mean i told her that face to face at some point before that but still it was like um that was a key crucial moment because it's like a casual i love you but it's um but it's a meaningful one it's just like saying it everyday life like she has she says that no it's not like casually just blurted out it's like i don't know if i'm going to talk to my dad again you know in you know that that harsh reality that you know Somebody could drive over him with a car or whatever. Like, so I want my phone call to end with, you know, the best possible word I can, you know, give somebody or, or phrase. And I started thinking about it, but I mean, that makes total sense. Anyway, long, long story. But so t today uh, I tell my kids, I love them both in Finnish and in English, depending on the situation or whatever. Uh, I tell that to my wife and I end my phone calls with that and i've even blurted that out to some of my buddies which are greatly weirded out by it if they are finished <laughs> uh not my american ones really because they they are sort of used to that but but it's um my wife taught me how to say and use the word love what is your least favorite word ah uh, i don't know like I, well let's go easy opposite of that is hate um and uh it's not so much a, a word but it's the uh the actual you know hating something um there are very few things that i hate but it's easy to say 
I hate this and that. Uh, it's more, I want to always correct myself. And I dislike something a lot. And it's very different from hate. Um, and um, I hate very few things. Like I hate people being, you know, uh, bad, idiot, jackasses, bigots, uh, not, you know, not caring uh, about everyone the same way. So just, um, it's, it's hard to put uh, uh, one word other than hate in this one. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, well, easy answer is my family, my, my kids. Um, it's, it's easy for me to leave, uh, the house having made some hot cereal for the kids, sent them to school and daycare and, uh, you know, come to the studio feeling good. Everything is fine with the family and my kids, you know, smiled the last thing I saw them. And I mean, that, that leaves me in a very inspired and, and a motivated space. Um, but then, uh, in the studio, uh, sounds inspire me. Like I, other people's music, sometimes if I don't feel creative right when I come here, I just pop in anything. Like it could be pop music. It could be the latest DJ set that I played and recorded, like my latest stream. It's not that I played it, but I played good music in it. So I'll check out a couple of those tracks or how they mix together. And then that tickles something that inspires me to make my own music. And, and sometimes just like um, putting on a synth sound, putting on a delay or reverb on it, pressing keys and listening to what comes in the delays, what kind of rhythms and what kind of harmonies different keys together create. And that inspires me to start a track. What turns you off? Well, um, dickheads. Uh, people who, people who, um, uh, who go out of their way and try to hurt somebody. And, uh, you know, you find that a lot online today. It's, it's, I think it's much easier to, you know, find that today because people can anonymously or semi anonymously from a distance be dickheads, uh, today. It's much harder that way than face to face with somebody because then you have to face the actual sometimes physical consequences as well. What is your favorite curse word? Well, I think I use vitu and fuck equally. Um, I've, I've been using, uh, you know, uh, my house home language has been English for what, 13, 14, I don't know, something years. Uh, and I've been, you know, traveling for work in and mostly spoken English. So Sometimes if I'm on the road and I don't have a fin with me, or I don't do a phone call or whatever, I even cuss in, 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 in English when something bad happens or when I'm frustrated. But, but I guess deep down, it's the v, v word in Finnish that is the, the strongest and the most on-call ones. That's the job. What yeah. sound or noise do you love? Um, 
such a cliche, but but my kids laughing. That's uh, I I don't know anything better than a kid laughing, and especially if it's my own. Um, but I'll give you another one. I've been really excited about refinding skateboarding, and um, uh, after like twenty plus years, and I've now skated a couple of summers, but especially this last year. And uh, a sound of rock to fakey on a quarter pipe, rock to fakey, that click, click, shh, and rolling away. That's that's an amazing sound. What sound or noise do you hate? Housekeeping! <laughs> wakey, wakey, wakey! <laughs> But there's more to that housekeeping when i have the do not disturb signed on and i have a late checkout confirmed at the front desk and yet there is housekeeping that really grinds me the wrong way what profession other than your own would you like to attempt Um, I really loved my job uh, as a repair guy. Uh, I was an, uh, an authorized Apple reseller and repair shop in Turku, Finland called Varimport. And um, I really loved my job there. I, I loved my, my peeps and then just in, in general being sort of behind the scenes. I wasn't that I needed to be hidden, but but I, I got to tinker with the computers and fix them and install networks and new hard drives and whatnot. But then so you were a genius custom. already in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, it, I just wasn't called that. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't a, a bar, uh, Apple bar. But uh, yeah, I, I think that was cool. I, I probably had the music stuff not taken off. I probably would be doing something like that still. That was um, definitely computers and technology is part of my calling and part of the reason why I'm an electronic dance musician too. What profession would you not like to do? Um, I would, um, I would absolutely want to be, and I still want to be somebody who can help people doing something. You know, if if they're struggling or, but. But it would probably be really, really, very, very difficult to be like a social worker taking care of children's needs and seeing all the bad cases. I don't know if my 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 head could take something like that. So my my hats off to people who who dedicate their lives to doing something like that, where you know you have to hear and experience try to sort out bad stories and, and experiences that especially kids have had if you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era which one would you choose wow um that is a really really good one um Um, well, you know, 
you know, I'm I'm in the music stuff myself, so I know it from my my side. And it's not even a, the success part of it, but I would have loved to be a part of the Dennis Pop, Max Martin, that that crew back in the day, to because they must have had insane experiences. First of all, seeing how the music stuff works, but also all the people who've come through their doors and uh, who they've worked with. That that must have been just like on completely on another planetary level. Thank you, Phil. This has been a plus, totally out of control. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, I'm trying to figure out a, a good quote from a piece of music that I made, but uh, uh, you can tell the world that I've been waiting, waiting for a moment just like this. <laughs> We can build a house of love and forgiveness, you and me. Uh, we can go all the way tonight. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. And before we go, please subscribe. Uh, send this episode at least to one, one of your friends who think you would benefit from it. And thanks for joining. Until next time.